Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. So before I introduce my guest panel today, I wanted to talk about some of the things that I've been watching this past week. I watched the documentary on HBO Max called Fake Famous, and it's very well done. It's about social media and Instagram and basically the whole influencer thing. So it really was very revealing how kind of, you know, it was a social experiment to see if you could make anybody famous, like somebody who's literally famous for nothing to make them famous. So I won't spoil what happens, but I I highly suggest it's very well done, very interesting. I also watched another good documentary called Framing Britney Spears on Hulu, which was done with the New York Times and Left Right, who always consistently does great work. Um, I highly recommend you watch it. I think you'll learn a lot. Um, I I think that they could have gone deeper on on some issues with the conservatorship, but I think that did a really excellent job of literally framing how um, the media especially has been complicit in the exploitation of Britney since the beginning of her career. Um, now, whether or not or how that affected what's happened to her is, you know, something that you'll, you'll probably decide for yourself when you see it, but I thought it was very interesting and, and very well done. And lastly, I have to mention that I binged a whole series. I mean, I stayed up way past my bedtime on Friday night. It's kind of embarrassing because it's really not that good. It's called Firefly Lane on Netflix. It's a scripted series with Katherine Heigl and Sarah Chalky from Scrubs. Um, I don't know. Maybe I was just in the right mood, but I loved every minute of it. It was just so good. And again, by so good, I mean not really good, but I enjoyed it anyway. Okay. So my guest today, I have a three-person panel, starting with Johanna Vanderspool. She is an award-winning director, writer, and producer, and she founded the Nonfiction United, used to be called The Union, in 2018. And the idea is to ensure better conditions for our industry from fair pay to safe work environments. And that's really what this podcast is focused on today. So she's joined by Tony Ann Lagana. Tony's a freelance producer. She's worked in unscripted TV for about 10 years on a bunch of different shows like Dancing with the Stars, American Idol. And most recently this summer, she did the 2020 Democratic National Convention, which was excellent. Uh, Really well produced, I thought. And then our third guest is Jason Martinez, otherwise known as Jamar. And he's worked in the business over 20 years. He has been field directing and producing shows since the early days on MTV's Rolled Rules and The Challenge. And he just finished a full season of Temptation Island during the pandemic, which we talk about. So, and and we do talk about how COVID has shined a light on really some of the core issues in our business and also get into rates and how rates have changed or haven't changed over the years. Uh, and by rates, I mean money. Um, and how, in Johanna's words, the whole industry is set up like a mafia family. So enjoy my talk with Johanna, Tony Ann, and Jamar. Okay, well, welcome, everybody. It's so great to have you all on my screen. Thanks for being here. I want to introduce you. Uh, I've set you guys up on the intro, but uh, why don't you just, uh, we'll go around and you can introduce yourself so people can get familiar with your voices. Okay. 
Hi, Lisa. This is Johanna Vanderspool. I'm an executive producer, director, uh, extraordinaire. <laughs> Getting. Um, I've been around this uh, block for a while now, and uh, I, I go from development into production into post production, and I have been concentrating on a variety of different genres across uh, reality and doc television for the past. Uh, 15 to 20 years now, I think. And I'm also the founder and lead organizer for the Nonfiction Union, which is now being called the Nonfiction United. That's great. Um, and I also, I, I usually do start every podcast by saying how I know my guests. So I'm just meeting Jason and Tony Am, but Joanna and I met um, several years ago now here in LA through Joe Lavecki uh, at the Soho House. I remember that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we've we've kept in touch and follow each other on social media. So I've been aware of the NFU for a few years and been wanting to have you on. And then you suggested bringing on a few other producers, which is I love doing these type of panel things. So I'm really glad. So let's go to Tony Ann. Hey, guys, it's Tony Ann Lagana. Um, I uh, started in actually on air promos and I always knew I wanted to kind of branch out and do more long format. So I ended up in LA and I worked on a lot of live television and for, you know, the Oscars and, and just various, um, live red carpet shows. Then eventually I was brought into, um, the non-scripted reality world. And I've been here for about 10 years. Um, I'm currently a senior producer and writer and um, it's it's been a wild ride, but um, <laughs> a lot of, um, you know, great different genres uh, as well. And uh, it's just been uh, recently I've been really getting into writing as well. So I'm happy to be in this world, though. And let's go to Jamar, Jason Martinez. I'm going to call him Jamar because oh, that's his preferred nickname. Thank you, Lisa. How's it going? Thank you for having us. And uh, my name is Jason Martinez. A lot of my colleagues call me Jamar. I've been in this industry for almost close to 20 years now. I started in Unscripted in 2001, um, starting with the Buna Murray show, The Challenge, one of the very first ones. And I was a technical supervisor back then and then made the uh, transition to directing and producing in 2005. And uh, here we are 16 years later, uh, still, still, still in the game, still grinding. So <laughs> I love it. You were really at the beginning of reality TV. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Exciting. So did you three know each other before you all became involved in the NFU? Um, I didn't know Tony Ann, although I was happily surprised to find out that she'd been in the group for about a year and a half um, we, when we spoke the other day regarding her guest column in the Hollywood Reporter. And then I knew Jason Martinez from our time. Um, actually, I think we met each other via Facebook prior to Temptation Island, and he'd been in my mix. Um, and then, of course, he joined the NFU and is very integral to what we do. And so, yeah, we've known each other for a handful of years. Yeah. So you brought up the Hollywood Reporter guest column, and that was really the impetus for me thinking, oh, yeah, I want to cover this on the podcast. Tony Ann, let's talk about I'll put it in my show notes so people sure. can read the full column. But let's talk about the column and what prompted you to write it and kind of the broad strokes of what you wrote about. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, honestly, I've 
like I said, I was in this industry for about 10 years, but it, it took me a while to really understand every department and like who was protected, who wasn't. Um, I kind of just jumped in, you know, starry eyed and, and doing what I loved to do. And then as the years went on and, and different shows, you know, you learn a lot, you're jumping from show to show. So you're able to kind of get a variety, which is what I love. Um, but I think honestly, it's been a cu- accumulation, but with COVID, um, it, it really kind of changed, you know, the way I process things and the way I was seeing what, you know, what was wrong, what, what, what was wrong, what is wrong, what, where, where is this going to lead? Um, so I was working on various shows and I mean, the hours were just getting to a point where I'd work on a show. And then everything would stop. So you knew for three to six months, your whole world is just going to kind of shut down. And I was in post-production mainly. I started in field, but now I'm more in post-production. And the post-production process was just getting, I mean, almost too much to handle where you had, this year I was making a decision. Do I, how do I sustain this level of, of work with the hours just kind of bleeding in? But with COVID, when it was brought to my home, you know, you're working out of your home and you're realizing, um, you know, you already set up for a 12 hour day. Fine. You know, that's crazy to some who aren't in the industry, but you know what you're getting into. But when it starts just kind of head in a direction where you literally stop down your whole world and then there was no boundaries, even at home, you think, you know, how is this where the one, is this where the industry is headed? <laughs> um, Two, you knew, you, like for me, I knew that the story producing role had changed just by the superiors, the people above me. They're like, well, I used to have to do this and I used to have to do that. I'm Can like, you explain right. what that means though? Like, sure. To yeah, absolutely. And how it's well, evolved? you know, for example, I mean, what was interesting, Eliza, is um, you had a guest, Susan Horowitz, um, on, your, on your podcast. And I, when I heard her say that she started as a story producer, but was working and looking at current affair articles. And you just think how far back, you know, this, this role kind of changed one minute, you're looking at an article to find stories. And then it just slowly evolves where I mean, that you're on avid, almost doing what, you know, an assistant editor may, well, was was doing, and now you're, you know, taking on the reins of the whole story, but not just story, but actually producing it on an editing software that, um, you know, which is great for some, but after a while, you, because you know that skill, you're kind of like, well, go on this ride for a bit, but then, you know, and you sit back and you see that, you know, if you're working a six day week and then your editors are off, you know, and only working a five day week and you're up there pulling the slack, trying to, you know, catch up to, to what you need to do. Um, it, it was, it was getting to a point where I, I said, you know, do I leave this industry like so many other great creative producers or do I try to step up and make a change? So uh, I know others had tried before, but I figured, you know, this is a new time. Um, and to, to put down my thoughts when I was feeling it um, may give it more of an authentic, um, you know, voice. And, and it, so I did that. And that's why I was at a crossroads. Like, do I continue doing this or do I get chased out of the industry that I like to do? So. 
Right. I mean, I want to jump in there to um, kind of to explain sort of how the industry has changed. So I used to work uh, in corporate and media at Sony Pictures, and then I went over to Comedy Central and I was sort of in the track of doing more scripted productions. And then the kind of jazzy look, you can uh, bypass all the steps and you don't have to be, uh, you know, a PA forever and forever and then get your earnings, like literally there's like all these high um, hierarchy that you have to do in order to get ahead and scripted and it become it's very slow because they want you to learn all the disciplines. Um, and so, you know, when you look at, you know, nonfiction, they were, you know, you could be a director really quickly. You could be a writer really quickly and, and you know, be taking on these roles. And so um, it was really fancy um, when I got involved with uh, documentary television in about 2005 uh, from being in a corporate media job. And what happened back then is a producer used to go from start to finish. You had, you know, you did development, casting, and then you did uh, field production, and then you went to post-production. And you wouldn't have to touch an um, avid edit bay at all. You didn't do premiere, you didn't final cut, you didn't do any of that. You just did paper cuts, and then you handed it off to an AE, and that AE would put it together. And so, you know, at that time, also, a lot of the television shows uh, for documentaries and um nonfiction and uh, reality television, it was a one-off and it was true verite. So you did not write these shows, you know, they weren't going to air again. And so there was a non-scripted element, but that changed. And now what took used to take, you know, seven to eight months to make a show, one show, you know, 13 episodes, um, we used to take about seven, eight months and you used to have a pretty robust budget you know you'd have a good role and you would work five day work weeks you would work eight to ten hour days and you had a life and you had a really great rate so that you could pay for your health insurance um that soon changed coming from new york the standards were so much better and then coming over here to los angeles in 2007 i saw a wild wild west of buffoonery it was crazy how people were being uh treated from the field and then post and then when the idea of how we can go ahead and shorten the schedules and maximize the dollars by putting post uh, underneath field. So as soon as the media is taken and, and captured, boom, it goes straight to post-production. That post-production uh, story producer now is writing, editing, and also does not know at all what the field did because they don't, they never saw it. They never were in the field. So now you have all these, you know, very just constricted timeframes that what used to be a seven to eight month job for, you know, 13 episodic show is now six weeks, six weeks. And with a budget that is shrunken so that all the producers have to work a longer day, now six day work weeks. And they get to do it for half the price or let's say one fourth less than what they used to make when I first started. Okay. So there's so much to dig into, but I kind of want to break it down. I mean, I have a million questions, but to follow up on what you just said, because let's say in the last, I don't know, five years, the, I'll put it in quotes, the excuse from the production companies is the network budgets are getting tinier with all the consolidation, you know, we have no choice but to consolidate jobs, pay lower rates than you might be used to. So, you know, sorry, but this is where the industry's at. But you're saying that this is pre-existing. This is back now 13 years um, where we were quite fat 
you know, and, and production companies were selling for lots of money. Things were way better. So what's going on? Sure. I can go ahead and give you uh, sort of the rundown really quickly for the viewer, uh, for actually the listeners. Um, well, the thing that has happened, um, so reality television first started with cops. So anybody who tells you differently is, you know, just trying to say that they're the king of reality television, Mark Burnett, and of course, Jonathan Murray, who um, is a really great person. But, you know, the, the thing about uh, reality television is that um, there were only a a handful of production companies back then. And so the network was primarily uh, fiction-based. So when production companies started coming in and thinking, oh, well, we could do a, a nonfiction show, cool. And then that proliferated. And now we have hundreds of production companies doing nonfiction shows. Um, and also the marketplace changed so much so that we have not just five networks, now we have tons of networks. And then the advertising spend went less and less and less now that we have streaming services and IG and Twitter and YouTube. And so they look at their ad sales dollars and they think, where am I going to spend the money this year? And so now instead of putting it all on ABC or all on one production company or one show, they're like spreading it out. Well, that's all true. However, the thing about nonfiction is that it was always cheap because we don't have a union. And that is the issue. So there are no actors that have union reps that are saying, okay, we need you to pay properly, have standard hours, blah, blah, blah. And also we don't have writers. So we don't have the WGA down their throat. We also don't have directors. And so there's that. So we don't have any union oversight. And so Nonfiction television has always been cheap. And now with the proliferation of more channels and more programming that must be filled, all those hours have to be filled. They're filling it with nonfiction television because we're cheap. So the other side of it is there's focus groups. These focus groups basically come in and say, oh, we like this show. We don't like that show. And every year that more shows will be greenlit based off they really love modern family okay let's figure out how to make an ensemble show of more modern family um they'll the focus group viewers will come in and say we don't like reality television now they don't realize that reality television is no longer um the kardashians or honey boo boo they realize they don't realize this because they're not educated the fact that reality and documentary television is game shows your favorite uh, travel show, cooking show, design show, um, all your, of course, your Love Islands and Temptation Islands are included as well, all your competition shows. There's so many genres that are under this umbrella, but when the focus group person comes in and tells the network executive, we don't want more reality television, they demote reality television and spend less money on it because they think that their viewers don't really value it, except that What's actually happening is that they're absolutely watching it and the revenue dollars are flying high and they're going straight to the pockets of these network executives and they're pocketing all this. They're like, ah, they're getting their bonuses. They're getting rate pay raises. They're going crazy about it because they don't have to pay any union dues. And what's the craziest thing about all of this is that the PGA at one point wanted to unionize they were not allowed to because the Writers Guild slammed on the PGA and said, wait, 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 wait a second. You guys are producers. Well, back when this was all a controversy, producers were really producers. They were the only, they were the money. 
So the way that the unions and the network executives figured out how to bypass unions is to change our titles to producer. So instead of being a writer, you're now suddenly a story producer. Instead of being a director so that the DJ wouldn't have to get involved, now you're a field producer. So these are all the things that the in, like insiders kind of wiggled around with the titles and figured out how they could keep more money in their pockets without ever bringing in the union. So that's kind of the 411 on how the industry sort of, you know, tanked itself. And, you know, because we're so disorganized, because we've been doing this for about 30 years and we've been told by the machinery, our industry machinery, by the networks, by the production companies, we don't matter. We don't we we you should just be lucky that you're working we just then say okay and so there's a stockholm syndrome that comes with that you kind of like your abuser and so you don't want to tell on your abuser because you won't ever have a job because you'll be ostracized jason you're Um, nodding your head can you relate to that um absolutely uh there's a lot that johanna said there that um that just rings true in my ears especially you know given the history of what I've seen with my own eyes um, from the very beginning. I've worked my first reality show in 2001 and I've seen so much evolve in this industry. Um, But uh, certainly a lot hasn't changed as well either. Sadly, Um, everything that Johanna said, as far as, you know, the non-unionization of the work that we do is pretty dispiriting and pretty, um, you know, it's disappointing uh, because, you know, we have been doing this for quite a bit and I feel like we should be making these movements to unionizing our work. Our scripted counterparts do the same. Um, Unscripted content is, you know, getting as much publicity and, and accolades as scripted content at the Emmys. There's now a a space for us, but um, you wouldn't really be able to tell that by seeing the same paychecks that people have been working for, the um, arduous, long, crazy hours um, that Tony Ann spoke about in her um, recent article um, that uh, that was out, um, and the uh, Hollywood Reporter. It, it just, it, you know, you, this is not, not uncommon. I'm, a lot of my colleagues, producers, story producers, um, APs, um, directors, we all could probably just, you know, that echo the same exact sentiment that Johanna's talking about right now. Well, Tony Ann, you mentioned uh, talking about your column that you were working, you know, I think 14 or 16 hour days, crazy work hours. Now, this is where I'm a little confused because I am aware of certain companies and it may be because they're under much bigger entities that pay overtime. And that's part of the deal if you're a freelancer. So are there certain companies that um, are paying overtime and certain companies that aren't? Do we know how this works? So for producer, at least for my experience with producing, if your title is, you know, story producer or above, um, they weren't giving overtime. Um, and this was you know, a PA. A of, okay. Yeah. And so PAs and associate producers do, and they also can get a sixth day. So what ends up happening is, you know, when you are on the phone with your line producer or EIC or whoever calls you, and this is something I had to learn, you know, the hard way. And that's why I still continue to say, you know, fight for the right, fight for the rate you 
you deserve. And that's number one, you know, because what ends up happening is you hear the number you think is great, but when you put it on paper of how many week, uh, you know, days a week plus how many hours you're really actually making minimum if, if that honestly. Um, but that's number one, what, what, but the associate producers can get overtime and they can get a six day. What ended up happening on a couple of the shows, even recently, just, uh, I've worked on, um, they'll find a way to, to, to make sure those APs don't work that six day. And because of that, you are then, you know, prepping or, or doing what you need to do for the editors who, again, are working their five days, fine, but you have to be prepared for them. So you end up having to not only work on Avid, but go to endless hours of meetings because you are, again, essentially in charge of that story. Not only are you in charge of that story for that moment, but the future. Where do you see this contestant or this you know, talent going um, in your season? So you're having to think forward. You're having to then spend time on Avid. You're having to you know, essentially babysit a lot of different um, you know, different people. Um, and I, to me, if someone said, um, you know what, Tony Ann, your job description changed. This is what you're going to do as a producer and it has nothing to do with Avid. I'd be fine with that. And I would also be fine if they said, Tony, your job description is only Avid. You're going to be in charge of the story. But the second I sit down on that editing software and I spend almost 12, 12 hours my day doing that instead of, um, you know, thinking of story ideas, pitching, and actually calling the talent and, and doing anything I needed to do uh, on the other end, which they also want you to do, the executives, um, I, I say that deserves a union and it deserves overtime. I totally hear that. But let me ask you a question about that. When you accept the job, are the parameters super clear from day one on what the expectations are? Because I would think you know, if they say you'll never have to do the average, you're handing that over to an AE, then all will be, or do you ask, like, what are, yeah. how is it all laid out? I, I've learned to kind of, you know, to ask now um, what the job is entailing, uh, what it's entailed, um, because I already know it's a 12 hour day. It's not really the hours, you know, I, I move on from that. But the responsibility, the arms that you have to have, the skills all of a sudden, you're a writer, you're a director, you're, you're now telling the field team who is also, you know, again, a lot, of, a lot of departments say, oh, well, you know, we don't have a union too. And I totally, totally hear that. And that is, um, that's the problem as well with different departments. But for my, in my experience, I was also the eyes and ears of the executive producer as a story producer, telling the field what to shoot, telling them, hold off, no, don't do this, do this. So you're having to also make sure that the field gets what, what you need to edit. Um, so they tell you little when you are on those phone calls. <laughs> the yeah. initial. Well, yeah. I think I'm imagining, you know, Johanna called it Stockholm syndrome. And I think there's a lot to dig into there, but what I, what keeps running through my head is from the production company's point of view or from the EP's point of view. Well, now Tony Ann is proving herself so valuable. She's so good at all these things. She's priming since she's working so hard and she's doing wearing 10 hats, she's going to become an EP for the next show. Like this is a win-win, right? Because you can do all this. So you're going to move up faster. I'm imagining that's what's going through maybe even your mind and why you're sucking and why you might be sucking it up, even though you're super exhausted and pissed off. 
for me, I always, for, for, uh, forever, I was thinking, well, this is a great opportunity. And I, and I love being creative. Um, but I think, you know, after a while you sit back and when you put so much on hold or you wit, it's not even what happens to me, what I witness, you know, to other producers and you just see kind of this community of people not being able to deal with it. And you're kind of, you're almost blending your life to work in this industry. And, and I, I just, I don't think that it's either you walk away or you suck it up anymore. I think you, if you want to stay, you know, you do have to sort of raise the question and raise your hand and say, you know, is this a, what if we did it this way? Or what if, you know, just start that conversation. Otherwise we will keep running in circles and your skills. Yeah. You'll have a great long list of skills on your resume, but what is it doing to your body? What is it doing to your mental health? And, you know, it's, it has to, you know, kind of stop. Johanna, you were going to jump in. Oh, um, well, I think, you know, the, the thing about some of the, um, concepts that, you know, Tony Ann was talking about, you know, just, you know, from story producers perspectives, you know, the NFU started uh, with a story producer article for the Hollywood Reporter a few years ago um, that shared is sort of the, you know, bad conditions that it was going through. I mean, that wasn't just, that was just touching the tip of the iceberg because um, I, I know Jamar will be able to talk about field. Obviously I've done a tremendous amount of field and post um, and now I'm a showrunner and showrunners are also no longer really the ones pulling, you know, sort of the, the game together. And, and a lot of it is the production companies um, and their limitations with the show budgets they're given. And a lot of it goes back to sort of, I call it the grandfather, right? The godfather, you have the godfather and then you have all the families, dynasties, and then you have us, which are the children. So and is the godfather, being, the networks in that analogy? <laughs> yeah, the, okay. the networks are the godfathers the production companies or the family dynasties that are doing the work of the godfather. And then you have the children and the children can be a showrunner all the way down to a PA because we're just equally as expendable. Um, and of course, as a showrunner, you used to be able to have your, you could bring on the teams that you wanted. You were really more the, the, you know, true producer of, you know, in, in the sense that you really called all the shots and you really had all the creative and that you were given the license to do things. Now that uh, networks are scared to death of their own shadow because they're losing eyeballs, um, they're really putting the pound pounding on the family dynasties, the production companies. And so now you see the production company also in pain and you have the workforce in pain and yet nobody's able to do anything because the production companies can't go rogue um even though you know there's places like impact and michelle van kempen and people who are trying to you know uh, advocate for the production companies but then there's sort of our freelancers from field production um and then post-production from post-supers to production managers to casting producers across the line, creative and logistical from top to bottom, um, that we need to fight for ourselves. And our Razor Sanders campaign for the NFU back in May, where uh, we also had a THR article that came out that was that gave statistics and sort of broke it down how we were getting paid per position, what our actual titles are, what our dubious titles have been, um, what conditions we've been going through through for the past 30 years. That presentation circulated across Hollywood, all over Los Angeles, New York, across the nation, um, and really sort of 
signified and signaled to everybody, like we're here and we are, we are starting to make a movement that is going to scare everyone and we need to. And so it's really nice for, um, you know, for when our freelancers such as Tony Ann to come out of the shadows and say, you know what, I'm sick of this. With COVID, it, we have been shown that we, we don't matter by these production companies. And whereas with union scripted productions, they had relief, financial relief for COVID. All the unions forced all the production companies to pay their actors, writers, directors, editors um, during the time um, for their productions. They also had COVID protocols that were ahead of us that still a lot of those production companies and those shows such as, you know, Blackish and all these other uh, scripted shows, they didn't come back, many of them, because we still have COVID surges and they demand, the union reps demand that they have certain measures in place. Because scripted sort of was on the down low, right, wasn't opening, wasn't furthering forward, then they took up the slack with us. And because we don't have any any protection, we had COVID waivers that we had to sign and be forced upon us in order to go out into the field. And yeah, basically, you know, say we are going to waive our liability. We're, we're okay. Yeah, we you can go ahead and you know. Yeah, yeah you don't that, have to I saw a lot COVID. of that circulating. We're in a um, top secret uh, women's Facebook group for women in our industry, where a lot of that stuff is posted. And one of the things that struck me during COVID um, is this new COVID compliance role that's being done by people like us that have no health background, that have no knowledge of anything really. It's just sort of like, it seems to me maybe a way to, again, cut back um, maybe again, because there's no budget for it. And that's the other thing I've heard is that networks are requiring you to indemnify them and have everybody tested and have everybody with PPE, but they're not giving I don't speak about all the networks. I don't know who is and who isn't, but I know that's been an issue. So Jamar, I wonder with you, um, you've been, have you been working during the pandemic in the field? Yes, I was um, very fortunate to um, last June, get a call from a former um, employer of mine. And I did a pretty safe uh, COVID COVID safe uh, shoot here locally in Los Angeles. And there are only about, five of us on set, we respected the mask rule, we respected the uh, six feet rule. And, uh, you know, there was just the, you know, hand sanitizer everywhere. Um, So that that was, that was very um, fortunate for me. And then I also did a season of Temptation Island, um, where we were flown out to Maui. And uh, we were put in a bubble situation. We had a quarantine for two weeks. Um, It was awesome. I felt safe. Um, everyone was tested. Um, we were once again, just, uh, safety was the number one priority of the show and was the number one priority of the production company we were working for. So I say thank you to them. I really appreciated it because I want, I don't want my loved ones getting it. I don't want my parents getting it. I, it's, uh, it's something that I take very seriously. And I think a lot of people don't take seriously. I've heard nightmare stories of people who've been out on the field and they come to me because I'm a friend and somebody who's been working 
quite a long time in this industry and I've heard some really outlandish stories of people, producers who have been forced to put their crew in unsafe situations because they just want their content. When I say they, it's mostly the production companies and to kind of dovetail with Tony and what Johanna were saying, it's really dependent on the production companies. It really is upon the onus of the production company to take care of the welfare of its crew. And from what I've been hearing, there are a lot of awful situations where producers and directors that are on the field, well, mostly these field producers that are put on the spot because they are put in situations where they have to babysit potential cast members that have not been tested for COVID. And meanwhile, uh, they have to get the content and they're put in this really, you know, just a dubious position of saying, all right, look, am I going to put my crew at risk here or do I just get the content because that's what I've been told to do? Um, there's a lot of intimidation and a lot of sort of bully tactics that um, people use because the, the production companies are under pressure to deliver this content. And COVID has not really changed that. I think a lot of people just kind of forgotten about COVID and they just want to sort of just keep hammering the directive of, hey, we need to get this content at whatever cost. And it doesn't matter what you have to do, just get it. And that's the mentality that a lot of people have. And it's all dependent on the production company. If they want to take this pandemic seriously, then they'll treat everyone with the same sort of respect that they have to be working in a, at least somewhat of a bubble situation like we were doing in Temptation Island in Maui. I felt completely safe. We were in a complete dome-like situation where everyone got tested and there was, you know, nobody could come in and and it, it felt really safe. I think we all felt really safe. And that was a, a, a real, um, like, it almost felt like, you know, like a, a treat, really, just like at that point, because, you know, not many production companies will go to great lengths to protect their crews like that. Um, thank you so much, Jamar. I mean, I think that Jamar was also very lucky because, you know, Temptation Island and USA Networks is a very big, giant, uh, you know, well-known show. Um, many of the other shows, especially if it's a new season, are not getting that kind of treatment, like he was saying. Um, we've been talking to reporters um, and sharing some of these stories because, you know, there are people in Atlanta who are doing the Real Housewives franchise, for instance, uh, where they've had literally their crew and, um, and, and their staff have been falling like flies, basically. They'll get COVID and then there'll be a shutdown for production and they'll bring in another producer and they have to know the show within two hours. You know, and, and there's so many different scenarios. And yes, sometimes it is the production company, but a lot of the times the production company is being told we are not going to get any more money. So even though you have to hire a COVID compliance officer, um, which is usually a team, uh, we are not going to give any, you any more uh, funds on that that so all your ppe all your medical testing um your covid compliance officer and their team yeah that's part of your budget um we're not going to give you additional funds so that's your overhead you have to take care of it um and so these production companies are like oh crap not only are they now having to you know hire that person but then they're also they're like okay well who do we lose we're going to lose a couple of field producers okay instead of having five field producers that we need who are segment directors actually um, we'll just have two or three. So their long days, their days are getting longer. Um, in post-production, um, it is becoming uh, relevant to post-production, even though we're not 
necessarily going back into the edit bays with our editors, we are doing these ridiculously long hours. So you're working from home and there's no boundaries anymore. So you're just working 16 to 18 hour days. Um, and I also did my share of, you know, a 120 hour work week for six weeks for a network this past summer that made me not only very ill, I fainted in front of my entire staff. Like th there's, there's so many things that are happening with the COVID response. Um, so that's in or in the field or away at home that we're dealing with. And there's no one protecting us saying, hey, things need to change. And that's why the NFU is, you know, here to not only expose those stories, create press and buzz around them, to put these production companies and these networks on alert because it's the networks that are saying, oh, you got problems? I don't want to know. I don't want to know. La, 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 la. Oh, you have to go do X, Y, and Z to make this show? Don't tell me. Go ahead and rob the bank, but I don't want to know about it. So that's where the, the buck stops at the network. They're paying for all of this. They should have more oversight on these production companies. If a production company is being abusive to its workers, the workers need to tell that production company and that production company and also the network. The network needs to come down on the production company and find out what's actually happening. If there's a, uh, an issue of regularity from that production company and they're bad actors consistently, that network needs to stop doing business with that production company. Oh, you just opened Pandora's box in a good way, because this is the thing, right? It's all a big cycle of abuse in a sense where you guys as the freelancers are in the unenviable position. Well, first of all, let's start from the top. So the business is so squeezed and proliferated, as you said. So the production companies are already in that codependent cycle of we can't sustain our livelihood without the network. So if we complain, they'll find another production company to work with because, you know, they're a dime a dozen ultimately. And then that trickles down to you guys, because if you put up a fight about money or working overtime or you're working the weekends, okay, noted, we just won't hire you again because there's 10 people in back of you who are excited to do this and will keep their mouths shut. So I want to say, first of all, I applaud the NFU and you three and everyone else who's involved in speaking up because I think it's scary. And the fact that there is no union to protect people in our business is makes everybody more vulnerable, not just in terms of protections, but in terms of being a squeaky wheel. And, you know, frankly, I'm at a point where I don't really care anymore but a few years ago, I may not have had you on because maybe it was a bad look for me that I'm actually wanting people to stand up for themselves because then maybe someone won't want to hire me. But I think it's giving people the courage and not just that, but also the hope or belief that things will change. So sorry, I just got on my soapbox, but I wanted to kind of tie in a lot of what you guys were saying. But I do want to talk and... I don't know if we can get into this, but I do want to actually talk brass tacks and talk about rates because I know that a lot of what you guys are trying to do is to, um, you know, raise the rates. There's no other industry that I could think of that basically hasn't given a pay raise to an EP in, you know, 15 years, or in some cases it's been worse. So Jamar, for you, I mean, you've been at the high end of the ladder for a while since, you know, I guess eight years or so, have you seen your rate stay static or go up or does it depend on the show? 
Depends on the show. The rates have pretty much stayed the same because I, I, I and sometimes I'm surprised at the low ball <laughs> rates that come my way. It um, and I just I just I, I'm going to stand firm with it. I've been doing this long enough that I just I, I'm pretty I'm pretty steadfast and I'm just pretty much you know grounded in what I'm worth. So I'll say this is my rate and sorry I cannot work for less. Um, if it's ever a problem, um, some LPs or um, or EICs will go directly to the showrunner. And usually, I'm friends with the showrunner. That's why the showrunners have uh, reached out to me and said, "Hey, dude, are you available? Um, we'd love to have you." And I say, "Yeah, absolutely." And then I get the call from the EIC, and the EIC says, "All right, um, are you, can you do it for um, you know twenty two fifty a week?" And I say, "Absolutely not. Um, I that's I've, I've been doing this for a long time." Um, you know, this is my rate here and I can't do it for less. And somehow, you know, the, neg the negotiation goes back and forth, but um, it, I, I don't know. I've been doing, like I said, I've been doing this a long time. And if I feel like the rate's not worth it, I know I'm going to give my all. I know I'm not going to sleep. I know I'm going to eat bad. I know it, it, it's going to be a very strange time out in the field, like it always is. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you my all, just pay me what I'm worth. And I guarantee you, I will be a happy camper because if I do not work for what I feel like I am worth, then I'm not going to be a happy camper. And I'd rather just not even do the job. If that's right. The case. It seems so like um, common sense, right? It, it seems like common sense. Absolutely. And and the one thing that um, because there's so many producers that are sort of sent out in the field, like at any given time, there might be anywhere from two field producers to five field producers on, on any given show that I work with. I would like to see equanimity uh, in, in pay amongst all my colleagues. And that goes uh, the call across the board the, from, you know, doesn't matter uh, what race you are, what gender you are. We should all get paid the same because I know we all put in the same amount of work to uh, achieve the goal of, of gathering content for the show. We're creating the story. We're creating the, the show. We're making the show look great. We are directing the cameras. We are collecting the stories. We're, we're doing a hot sheet at the end of the a night when you're completely exhausted and have to summarize everything and turn it in to your showrunner so they could turn it into the network. There's a domino effect here where I know I'm going to be exhausted <laughs> by the end of the work week. So um, one thing that I just, you know, really sort of rubs me a little wrong is that if I potentially am doing all this work and then I find out one of my colleagues is getting paid more to do the exact same thing, that would completely rub me the wrong way. Um, and, uh, and then I would also, if I was the one getting paid more than everyone else, I'd feel kind of guilty about it, to be honest with you. Um, and, and, and we're all out there doing the work. We're all out there kicking butt and then we're using our voice boxes 24 seven and just got to, you know, do it all over again. And, and it's part of the fun. I enjoy doing when I work, when I, you know, making television, I enjoy making unscripted TV. It's a lot of fun for me. Um, but, uh, but when you feel like your rights have been compromised because you've been taken advantage by a, uh, a clever production company that wants to lowball its employees, then it doesn't feel very good to be working on that show. That makes sense. Joanna, you mentioned before that if there's situations where the production company is being, you, I think you said a bad actor or abusive, sometimes, maybe I misconstrued what you said, but it sounded like you said sometimes you need to go directly to the network Yep. to kind of wrap them out. How does that work? Well, it's, uh, it, uh, you know, 
I, first of all, I want to make a correction on what Jamar and also Tony and one of the things I I always try to tell everyone in the NFU and also journalists from this point forward is that not to call us uh, unscripted or non-scripted. We do a tremendous amount of writing and we are actually uh, script writing from host copy to actually writing VO wall to wall narration for kitten bowl. <laughs> I mean, we're doing a tremendous hot, we're building summaries and all sorts of different outlines before we even get out the door. So I want to make sure that, you know, everybody that works in our industry is no longer calling it unscripted or non-scripted. It is non-fiction and we do a heavy duty amount of writing. Uh, I also want to just talk about, um, you know, the, the rates about how they have come significantly down along with show budget. So an HETV show in 2007 would have been $750,000 per episode. Now we're given $250,000. Where did the $500,000 go? I don't, I don't know. I didn't even know there was ever a 700. I've been told 250 since I was a little baby and by HGTV. <laughs> so you were working on some good shows back then. Well, I mean, what I'm saying is for a renovation show, it could have been for A&E. It could have been for a different variety of um, kind of show. But for, for the most part, um, it's very well known um, across the board that our show rates, our show budgets have significantly come down. Um, and so therefore we have to pay people less. So what, uh, as a, you know, green uh, junior field producer back in 2004, it was $2,500 a week for five days for eight to 10 hours days. Now that's a normal rate. That's a high rate for a field producer. And that's inappropriate because that was in 2004, 2005. $2,500 a week. Okay. But the other side of that is exactly what you said. If the budget literally doesn't sustain it, how are they supposed to up the rate? That's, but that's the, that's the falsehood right there. The falsehood is that these networks don't have the money yet. They can have a C level type of scripted show where they are paying, you know, $4 million. Per oh episode. yeah. They have the money. Sorry they to be clear. The They're so, not my, my point is sorry from the production companies. Yeah. Uh, point of view. They're oh, given, yeah, you know what I mean? If the network's saying, this is what it is. On their ground. These production companies, they're, they're, they're not standing their ground. They're doing what freelancers are doing. Um, so they'll come in and be like, okay, can you, you know, the rate is 2,500. Uh, no, the rate is 2,000. And the freelancer's like 2,000 for store producer. But that used to be 2,800 or 3,200, depending on the job, like 2,000. Well, yeah, take it or leave it. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, and you know, you're, you're literally not even allowed to negotiate at that point. You're just sort of like, uh, well, I guess I need to work. Uh, I've had no work during COVID. I, yeah. Well, how long is it? Oh, six weeks. Oh, fine. I'll do it for six weeks. I'll go ahead and bulldoze myself for six weeks. Um, and the same goes what you were saying. Your question earlier was about the production company about the yes about producers going behind the production company's oh, back yes. straight to the network. Yes. So, you know, it's been unfortunate that I actually had to do that this year on a production. Um one of the things that happened was tell you know, us what it was. Show- I'm just hmm? kidding. <laughs> so tell us what yeah, it was. one of the one of the productions I was working I was showrunning a, a documentary on. Unfortunately, they they don't care about what the showrunner says. Uh they don't really honor uh, the showrunner. The showrunner is sort of like a proxy or another employee, like a 
production assistant, basically. Um, of course, they wanted me to put together the entire production from you know, from get from conception all the way to uh, deliverables. But the, the they did not want to give uh, the showrunner the budget. They didn't want to give you uh, any uh, hiring power, really. Um, they had to vet everybody. And it was just like it was just constantly a drill with this particular production company. Um, and one of the things they tried to do, which was I thought was amazing, is they told me that they would give uh, the line for the line item for a story producer with 2200 uh, a week. And I said, that's really, really low. And one of the things I was able to do, and I'm always able to do is let me have the budget. I'll work with the line producer, rearrange all the line items so that I can actually bring, bring people on for good rates and also offer them another six day pay or whatever. So I will help work with the budget because I used to be a line producer way back when. So that is a norm for me. Um, this, this company would not allow that. So they said $2,200 for a story producer. I said that was incredibly low, but okay. If that's what we have to do for this particular show, I said, that's cool. And then my story producer came in and was told that, uh, the rate was $1,700 a week. Wow. And, and he, he called me up and said, I thought you said this was above two. I was like, what? I literally lost my shit. Now that was just one example of what where they bulldozed the showrunner. Um, I can't tell you, there were so many infractions by this production company that, that when I had to be, I had to be a flamethrower. I had to talk to the network executive and pull them aside and say, look, this is what's going down. This is what's actually really happening. This is why there seems to be a struggle between me and the production company because I'm, making sure for higher standards and they don't care for higher standards. They say they want to do higher standards, but they're not walking the walk. And I walk the walk. I have a high level of integrity and I'd rather put myself in harm than have my crew and my staff and my, um, you know, just the people, the creatives, you know, who are working for me, who trust me. And I take it very personally. And and that's why it's up to each of the showrunners to feel this heat, to feel that they need to rise to the occasion because we are sort of the, the parent and we have all these children. And yes, we're supposed to feel confident that the production company is gonna take care of us. But if we don't, we need to step up and tell the network executive, you know what? Maybe I'll never be tired by you, but I don't give a damn because you know why? should have a better standard for themselves. And so I only want to work for people that have better standards. How, how did they react? They said, uh, thank you very much that they have duly noted it, that they, I mean, they felt that that person, the network executive said that they themselves as a woman, that they've been put in this position before where a male executive at a production company did not also listen to them as well and that they were going to see what they could do. I mean, it was too late because it was the end of the production and I, I had already delivered the show. So it's just like, you know, at the end of the day, I hope that network executive will maybe think twice or refuse to work with this production company again, if they if themselves have that level of integrity. Because now they know there's an infraction on that production company. Wow. And you know what, if my name is tainted for that, then so be it. But at the end of the day, People hire me because they know that I am going to make a great production and I'm going to protect everyone, not just myself, not my hide, everyone's hide, including the production company, because I want them to know to value all of us because we are worth it.
we do make a generous amount of money for these networks. We are very profitable and we need to start looking at ourselves like not the ugly duckling, but more like the swans. I think the thing is, is that the reason why we're fighting for better standards and raising our standards is because we actually love what we do. Uh, we've been doing it a while. And even for the newbies, like there's a reason why we strive to do, do all this stuff. It's artistry. It's it's show biz, but show art. And we really do have a dedication to this, this craft. And so I don't think, I think every single one of us, am I right, Tony Ann? Jay yeah, Tamar? absolutely. That's the only 100%. reason. Otherwise, I'd, you know, I wouldn't be here, honestly. I would have found yeah. another profession at this point. Yeah. But I love it. We run out. We want to stay and do what, you know, we love. And so that's why we fight. I feel very blessed to be in this industry for sure. Absolutely. I love that. There, we're, we're getting long here. So I want to encourage everybody to look at the NFU's website and I'll post all of those links and read more because um, if you want to get involved and be a part of this, I want to, um, I want to ask one more question before we wrap up, which is, I want people to be super clear on the reason that the NFU is not a union and can't be a union apparently. Um, we, we could be a union. Um, I just don't have a lot of money. <laughs> so what we're looking for is capital investors. If we want to become a union, we have to go down that trajectory. Um, I think that's just a really very hard to do. We are working with unions. We have the WGA East and West and also Teamsters that are go-to unions that are creating nonfiction contracts for everyone. Um, but they have to start at the production company level. Um, I prefer, we prefer not to have to flip show by show by show. We'd prefer to flip company to company to company. And then that puts the heat on the networks. Um, you know, it's funny that you, you say why we aren't a union. We were trying to get celebrities involved. There's a lot of celebrities that do reality television now from, uh, Dwayne, the rock Johnson to Amy Poehler to Mark Wahlberg. We contacted some of them. We even talked, we contacted like Dr. Sandra Lee's uh, pimple popper, who I put on television a few years prior to her Dr. Pimple popper show. Right. And all these, um, stars said, no, they didn't want to advocate for the NFU. And the reason why they didn't want to is the same reason why production companies don't want to advocate for themselves is because they will lose that network contract. And that's the problem. People are so scared of losing something rather than valuing something more. And women are significantly uh, paid less. People of color are paid less. And then there's white men who get all the reward. And yet they're also getting paid less in our industry. So it's, it's um, we have all these goals you know, to have overtime, to have standard titles, to have standard pay, to have a regular work week, um, to have health insurance, to have a 401k, all the things that are very similar to scripted and what those union, union reps provide for their counterparts, for their constituencies. So that's what we're fighting for. And that's what the WGA East and West, which have come down this road with for us before, but we are doing it from all sides, creative and logistical from top to bottom, everyone is coming together and we're going to go company to company company if we have to good for Hopefully you that we flip a few and that starts to people like netflix who say they have the high standards will say we should we should be at the front of this instead of behind it we'll change we'll 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 change our production companies that are working with us sure we'll, we're netflix we demand good good things 
for our workers and our production company. So that's one of the things that we're hoping to do is kind of work with these unions to help uh, spearhead this movement. And I was just going to quickly say uh, to Johanna's earlier point about, you know, she being as a showrunner, um, you know, the, obviously the production company is getting them to kind of open their eyes and the networks, but it really does help when the showrunner who you're working for, even if they can't, you know, make decisions the way they want to or help you the way they want to, but to know that they hear and understand, it does move everything forward a little bit because they are the person that's kind of like that liaison, that that in between. And I've had some great people at least be that ear and listen. And I think that that will really help move this forward. So if more people can be like that um, and, and see that, uh, it really can help. And there needs to be more people like you, Tony Ann, who, you. you know, and Jason, and uh, literally everyone can rise up. It's not, I can't do it alone. I can lead and create systems and be a leader of this, but I can't do it alone. And if everybody expects me as the NFU leader to do it, it's not going to happen. It literally has to be by the ground troops, all of us. So I want to end on a, on a high note, on an optimistic note. And I'd love for each of you to go around and say, I don't know, in the last few years, best experience with the, uh, without getting into it, production company you've had the best experience with and network you've had the best experience with, which kind of across the board, you know, meets those things that you guys are looking for, which is fair pay and good hours and, you know, treating you like a human and all of that stuff. So let's start with Jamar. Um, well, I, I, I once again, just was real fortunate during this COVID time to work on Temptation Island for Banerjee and uh, Banerjee really stepped up um, with uh, the safety aspect of what we were doing. I was very impressed with it. We were tested often. We lived in a bubble. Um, I, I just, once again, felt very safe. So um, USA Network and Banerjee, thank you guys for taking care of your crew during um, this uh, strange time in our history here. Um, and previous to that, I mean, I've worked for every uh, network under the sun. And, you know, and, and I guess the point goes back to the Prodcos. It's the Prodcos that uh, that are really the the people that um, that are sort of we have that lifeline with um, as, as a crew. We don't really um, interact with the network all that much. Um, it's always the showrunners and the and the production company execs that we work with. And I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of great production companies. And I've also had the misfortune of working with a lot of really terrible um, production companies. So it's just a grab bag. And like a lot of things in this industry, once you work for somebody that you love, you just hold on to them and you, and you, and you work your butt off for them. And you say, you know what? I love working for you. I want to work with you all the time because I know what the flip side of this is. It's working for people that don't value me as a person and people who don't value my work or and treat me kind of like I'm a piece of cattle. Um, and, uh, and just a quick shout out to a, a showrunner who I adore. I love Scott Jeffers, um, who is um, a wonderful showrunner of, uh, gosh, The Bachelor, Jersey I know Shore. Scott. Scott is one of my favorite people and, uh, and one of my favorite people to work with. And, um, and when you work with somebody of professionalism and caliber, like Scott Jeffers, you say, you know what, I'm going to impress 
the socks off of this guy because I want to work with people like this. They're going to treat me well and we're going to make a great product. And I know um, that they take my welfare and safety into uh, into high consideration. That's great. Tony Ann, how about you? What's our rose? You know, like rose and thorn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I would say uh, for me, it, uh, BBC studios and, and, uh, ABC uh, and and Demol Shine. I think uh, the three that I've worked with um, consistently, and they've uh, always, you know, there's there's been an ear there, and I, I think uh, for me that that's that's really important. So definitely for me, those three. Great. And last but not least, Johanna. Uh, Yes, I would have to say uh, I did something for IFC. Uh, It was a scripted comedy hybrid, um, sort of like Borat style called Gigi Does It. And I co-show ran that with Tim Tim Gibbons. And that was just a really great time. Um, It was with Grandma's House Entertainment. They were wonderful. They were just starting out as a production company. And IFC, it's just a very generous and um, caring production company. I I mean, network. They're just a very fun network to work with. And they listen to you. Um, I also have to bring it back to Jonathan Murray, John Murray. Um, He, I worked on Undressed and uh, for MTV. And I really... Uh, even though the the rates are a little low, you know, they've been doing this a long time over there at Buena Murray. So I have to give props to them because that was also a really fun show to work on. Wasn't that scripted? Um, Undressed, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty scripted show. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, they're hybrid. They're, that was a hybrid show as well as uh, Gigi Does It. So yes, they were hybrid sh- scripted shows. Yes. Fun. Well, you've each had, you know, such great experience and, and um, people can can check you out. Um, I really appreciate you all doing this. I, I hope that it was informative and I hope other people in our industry will will listen and, and look into the NFU. Um, I want to say again that I think you're super brave for doing what you're doing. I know it's not easy to be outspoken, especially in this industry. So um, I applaud you all. And, um, and, and thanks again for doing the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And thank Johanna too. She does a lot of work for the NFU. She does. (laughs) She does. Thanks. Thanks.